Hey everyone, it's Sabertooth here, and welcome to Floor is Rising, the podcast about NFTs. With me is Kizu. Let's move on to another country, another artist. So now we move to the Philippines, um, an artist that I haven't collected as much as I like because he's, you know, his stuff just sells out like hotcakes. I can't even, I can't even get to his stuff. Is uh, Bjorn uh, Kalasia? His style, I would say, is I would say it's definitely not as sort of friendly as uh, Dila and and Hari Cross from a sort of casual perspective. I mean, the subject matter is definitely a bit strange. I wonder what you what you think of of Bjorn's work. You know, I I personally love this aesthetic. Um, <laughs> I I used to visit Manila quite often for work, but quite some time ago, and I got to know the Philippine art scene a little bit. And I would say, obviously, it's very hard to make generalizations, but I think that the visual style of a lot of contemporary artists in the Philippines is it skews slightly more towards grotesque and dark. And some have said, you know, that's a function of the the kind of colonial history of the Philippines. For example, it was, you know, in succession, it was a Spanish and then American and Japanese occupied. And there's a very, obviously a very strong religious Catholic influence in terms of the imagery that they draw from. But at the same time, it's, it's mixed up with American pop culture references, obviously. And being, I think, English speaking makes a big difference because they have uh, direct firsthand access to, you know, the, the kind of global pop culture so to speak, from from the US and, and the UK and so on. So I found it to be, I mean, in, in, in a general sense, it's closer in spirit to what's to Western pop culture because obviously it's the major Southeast Asian country that's English speaking and with a kind of Judeo-Christian cultural background, right? So what we see with Bjorn's work, I think, is quite familiar in the sense that, you know, it has a slightly macabre, dark, whimsical, and, and a bit grotesque. And again, the influences are, are many. I think there's obviously the darker side of American pop culture. I think what's nice is that he has combined animation with oil painting, I believe. And, you know, sometimes it's a very simple, but effective frame-by-frame uh, frame animation of, of figures that he's drawn on paint or paper or just drawings. If you look at his uh, history, he's, he's, he has a number of gallery shows and his, his stuff is um, definitely selling in the traditional art market. So, so in a sense, he's, his practice is more sort of traditional friendly and he's sort of arrived at NFTs through that route. I think it has to do with the kind of specific context of uh, contemporary art in, in the Philippines, which does have a small but very interesting um, scene, I think. What I do know from my familiarity with the traditional art scene in, in Manila is that actually there's always been a very supportive private collector base. And I think partially that's because there's a relative lack of state-led, uh, government-funded art infrastructure. It's not Singapore, right, or, or Hong Kong, where you know the government has taken a, a strong interest in developing the art scene. Indonesia is similar, where there are very wealthy collectors that want to support local artists. In many cases, they even open private museums or they start art fairs uh, as a private initiative. And so I think it's precisely in places like that where, you know, you tend to see a lot of interesting initiatives that aren't, that don't have the branding of a Christie's or Sotheby's, or it's not, you know, like National Gallery in Singapore, for example. 
But, you know, they have a lot of very passionate collectors that also support the system. So you have the possibility that, you know, it's, it's these grassroots movements that end up supporting the art scene in a way that, uh, similar to the way that, you know, the NFTs may really take off in, in places like the Philippines. Well, I mean, the Philippines is a very interesting um, case study in NFTs because, you know, one of the OGs in the, in the NFT space is uh, Gabby Dyson, right? He has a famous story about being early into the NFT project, um, Axie Infinity, which is a, which is an NFT game. You just, just hop into any sort of Axie Infinity thread on Twitter. And what you'll find is very quickly, you'll get some Filipinos who are basically reaching out to you and asking to be sponsored uh, in, in Axie Infinity. And uh, what this is, is uh, he established this organization called the Yield Guild, which essentially sponsors Filipinos to play Axie Infinity, the game. And what it turns out is that there are today, I mean, I don't know how many, but Axie Infinity is one of the largest NFT games um, with hundreds of thousands of, of, of players. And a huge portion of these players are Filipinos who are playing this NFT game to basically support themselves because it pays higher than the minimum wage in the Philippines. I think there's a, there's a famous story that, you know, some of these players were presumed to be bots because uh, they were playing, you know, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And, you know, they were on the verge of being banned or being banned. I can't remember the story. But and then they were required to show proof that they were not bots. And what actually turned out was it was a family of Filipinos who were basically taking turns in, <laughs> in doing Axie Infinity duty, basically 24 hours a day playing the game. And, and that was how they sort of uh, gave income um, to themselves. And I remember, you know, quite vividly that back in the day when World of Warcraft was a big thing in the early 2000s, that there was this uh, phenomenon of a, of a gold farmer, right? So we're talking about sort of Chinese internet cafes in, in China sort of grinding out gold uh, and, then, and then selling it on eBay to, uh, to Americans who, who were sort of buying it and using it to, to play uh, World of Warcraft. And, and I thought this was a very interesting dynamic in the, in the NFT world, specifically in the Philippines that was happening. I'm interested to see what this actually means long-term for both NFT adoption and crypto adoption in the Philippines, whether this is just quite an isolated instance or whether... Sort of all these hundreds of thousands, and you know, possibly in the future, even millions of Filipinos who are onboarded playing certain NFT games. Whether you know they form a base for you know for future NFT development in the Philippines, or whether this this is just sort of like an, a quite an isolated just incidence of, of NFT gaming. I think it has somewhat less of a relationship to what most people understand today as the NFT art market, right? Because I think it's a, it targets a very different demographic in, in a sense, even though the underlying technology and what's being traded or earned is, is the same, right? I think it, it probably kind of primes the, the ground for mainstream adoption or familiarity with the technology and the format. But at the same time, I think it's a very specific use case of NFTs where people are literally earning an income in tokens on a game, right? But we never know. I think the, the, the main thing is that really that it's precisely in countries where there's a high kind of almost universal, you know, access to the platforms and digital native and, and mobile first and all of that, where, you know, I think there's a higher chance that NFTs will become a mainstream phenomenon. The Philippines does occupy a kind of symbolic role in that sense, I think, because it has a, a very large population of young people that 
would take to this phenomenon more naturally, I think, arguably than, you know, places even like Japan or China, where the average age is, is much higher. And thank you. That's the uh, end of this episode. And I uh, look forward to hearing you again. Bye-bye.